Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. This week on our panel, we have Gant. Hello, everybody. Beryl. Hi, everyone. Daniel. Hi, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Beryl, is this your first time as a regular host? Yes, that's the first time I'm joining to such a panel. Awesome. Do you want to just give us a brief intro and then we'll introduce our guests? Thank you so much for the opportunity. First of all, it's a very exciting one for me, but that's my first panel online. And I'm from the Netherlands and I'm a computer vision artificial intelligence scientist, both working in academia as an assistant professor. I'm leading lectures in the field of AI and computer vision. And I'm also doing developments within other projects in industry. So very interested to a discussion with other members here. Thanks a lot. Awesome. She's going to make us all smarter, guys. We have a special guest, and that is Frank Kane. Frank, do you want to give us a brief intro? Yeah, hey, good to be here. Yeah, so I guess I'm mostly known these days as a online instructor in the field of machine learning and data science and recommender systems and big data and all that sort of stuff. My courses are available on manning.com, which is uh, who connected us, and also on pretty much every other online learning platform you can think of. Before that, I worked at amazon.com as a senior manager and mostly worked on their recommender systems. Nice. Are you a software engineer trying to learn machine learning? then you should check out the course from Educative.io called Machine Learning for Software Engineers. It has 87 lessons, eight quizzes, 115 challenges, 163 playgrounds, and two code snippets. In other words, it's not just a set of videos that tell you how to do the thing. It actually walks you through all of the processes for machine learning. It gives you quizzes, it makes you do challenges. It's very hands-on. It's done with experts from companies like Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and Apple. And it is a terrific course that I've been learning to do machine learning. So go check it out at devchat.tv slash learnml. That's devchat.tv slash learnml. And that'll take you to the right place. You can sign up for the course. And just give a quick shout out. So we worked a deal out with Manning on any of their authors that we have on our shows. They actually give us a list of licenses so that we can give away like five copies of the course. And so if you stick around till the end of the episode, we'll tell you what you have to do to get in the running for one of those. And if you don't win, then they've also given us a 35% discount code that we can give out. Nice. So either way, you can either get it for free or for not as much as it costs everybody else. So I'm really looking forward to this. Your course is on machine learning and data science and deep learning with Python. And I think mostly, at least for Gantt and I, we've mostly done JavaScript, right? So I'm kind of curious to dive into, yeah, just what's out there in the world of Python for this stuff. I know TensorFlow is written in Python and some of the other tools are, but yeah, what's the avenue that you kind of take people down, Frank? Yeah, I mean, well, technically TensorFlow, I think, is written in C++ under the hood, but oh. it has a Python interface that everybody uses. Oh, so uh, gotcha. Yeah. That's kind of why we focus on Python. That seems to be sort of the standard language that most industry is using for uh, at least experimenting with ML. There's this thing called an uh, IPython notebook where you can interactively, you know, delve into uh, preparing your data and applying different machine learning models to it within a web browser interface. So it's really easy to iterate on changes to that algorithm and experimenting with little tweaks to how you prepare your data and things like that. So Python ends up being a good choice for just experimentation. And oftentimes it ends up going into production as well. Nice. So Beryl and Daniel, I I'm assuming you, you guys have done a little bit more in the Python world. I'm mostly uh, programming with Python, yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm Python 2, getting a little bit into Java and Scala. I used to be like object-oriented developer, and I'm more of like prototyping for models now. Gotcha. You know, you should upgrade to Python 3. I heard you said you're in Python 2, so just, just <laughs> oh, no, a recommendation no, no. <laughs> there. I'm, I'm going to get you advanced, buddy. <laughs> nice. So, so yeah, so if people are getting into machine learning and data science stuff, yeah, where should they start, Frank? Oh, well, of course, you start with my courses. <laughs> That's a glib answer. Um, <laughs> I was um, waiting for you to say something and have Beryl come in and go, no, 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 <laughs> no. Seriously, uh, the place to start oh, is just no, by I learning. start with his courses. <laughs> oh, there nice. we go. There you go. Actually, before you start with my courses, it would be a good idea to get some background in the Python programming language, because if right. you can go into that with some feel of the syntax, at least, that will give you a, a leg up on how to actually implement these algorithms in the real world. And also a little bit of background in linear algebra can't hurt either. Just understanding some of the basic mathematical background behind these algorithms certainly can't hurt matters. Yeah. Well, I have Very double nice. the experience other people have in linear algebra that didn't fail the class the first time. So... <laughs> <laughs> See, you're so advanced. You took it twice. That's right. That, that's what I'm trying to say. It's amazing. You know, it <laughs> most most difficult year of your life, I'm sure. <laughs> it was almost 20 years ago, so I don't know how much it really helped. But <laughs> well, I think that that's you know that's a fantastic way to start. And you, and you said uh, some of your courses do some really cool stuff, like recommendation systems. Mm-hmm. Can you, for our listeners, I guess, just sort of give us a high-level definition of a recommendation system, and then we can like dive deeper into it? Yeah, I guess it's best uh, described by what they do and some examples of recommender systems that are out there. So, for example, if you go to Amazon and you see people who bought this also bought, I worked on that. That's an example of a recommender system where they're using you know, your past behavior, in this case, what product you're looking at, to recommend other products that are related and relevant to what your current interest is. Netflix is another example of that, where they might recommend movies to you based on your past uh, viewing behavior and things that you looked at. YouTube, another example, where they recommend videos to you based on your past viewing behavior. These are all examples of recommender systems where these large companies are mining all this consumer behavior data to try to figure out what's the next thing that this person wants to see. And it ends up being a very important part of their business model at the end of the day. Yeah, it definitely seems like the most sellable form of AI to me. You know, just any company that's selling anything, you should be adding a recommendation or a recommender system to kind of come in there. Is there sort of a starter pack of getting a recommender in that maybe someone who works at a company who's interested in taking one of your courses should say, you know, I know now about X and I think that we should be recommending things I guess what I'm looking for is what's your recommendation system recommender system for people who want to take the course? Yeah, I mean, there are off-the-shelf solutions out there, but, you know, I think most of the big companies end up rolling their own for the most part. So you can sort of like start with a simple approach. The simplest approach is something called collaborative filtering. And in that case, you're just, you're not really using, you know, deep learning or neural networks or anything like that. You're just building this matrix of what people viewed and what the same people viewed together. And sort of the idea there is you, find people that are similar to you and find stuff that they like that you haven't seen yet and recommend that stuff. Or you can flip that on its head and say, here's items that I like. Here are items that are similar to those items based on what other people liked and recommend those other items to you. That's called item-based collaborative filtering. So you don't have to get into neural networks necessarily. You can get really good results that way. But if you want to graduate, you know, most, most of the uh, more modern approaches are using deep learning and AI. It ends up being a little bit of a challenging situation because of the sparsity of that rating data, but I don't want to get too deep into the woods on that. But you know, there's, <laughs> well, there's a whole way, there's a whole range of approaches. 
I don't have experience with recommender systems myself. <laughs> I'm curious. People change their minds about what they're buying in time. For instance, last year, if somebody bought a mask, probably you would suggest them to buy a medical study book also. But right. now when you buy a bus mask, you, uh, some they also recommend to buy toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> not a bad recommendation <laughs> everybody needs it yeah. so things change how, mm -hmm. how do these recommended systems adapt themselves in time yeah i mean you find do that they? there is yeah i mean that's talking about timeliness rights and a lot of these systems are only going to go back a certain period of time to look at that past behavior data anyway so often it just kind of takes care of itself because Usually you don't want to be going back, you know, five or 10 years in the past looking at behavior data to mine for these recommendations. You're looking at the past few months and a more sophisticated algorithm might actually weight those, those ratings based on how old they are even. So you can build it into the algorithm to sort of bake in timeliness into that behavior data and the recommendations that you're making. That makes sense. I, they stopped recommending that I keep buying a horse every time I want to travel somewhere. So it looks like they're updating <laughs> the data a little bit. <laughs> You, so your kid doesn't want a pony yet? <laughs> oh, that, that's true. <laughs> no, just unicorns. Uh, so uh. keeps recommending a horse plus hot glue plus a horn. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, Frank, these things I, were bought together on Amazon. These things were bought together. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you about some of the terminology. You mentioned collaborative recommendation. I've heard things about content-based recommendation, knowledge-based recommendation. And then even like combining all those together. Yep. Can you give us a little bit of your course for free and say just there's there's lots of things out there. Can you give us the 101 on what is out there and, and what's the difference, drawbacks, benefits of any of these different recommendation systems? Yeah, I mean, I guess the main insight is that the quality of the data that you're using to feed into these algorithms matters way more than the algorithm itself, right? So... If you have like a huge database of what people are actually buying and spending their money on, you can't beat that as an indication of interest. So that's why Amazon's recommendations tend to be as good as they are. It's not because they have these like super advanced algorithms. They do, but that's not why it's good. It's because they have this awesome data that like people are spending real hard-earned money to, to buy this stuff. And there's no more reliable way of indicating an interest in an item that you can mine for future recommendations. Uh, you start getting into things like clicks, what people are clicking on, what they're looking at. The attributes of the data itself, that's what we mean by content-based uh, recommendations. That data gets a little bit sketchy, right? You know, there's there could be bots involved in that viewing data. The metadata that you're mining for that content-based recommendation could be kind of dodgy and maybe even gamed by the uh, people that are selling the stuff. So it's really more about the quality of the data than anything. Hmm. Oh, that makes sense. One thing that I'm curious about then is how do you how do you clean it up, right? Or how do you verify it or validate it? Yeah, I mean, well, that's kind of a general problem in machine learning in general, right? Feature engineering, cleaning your data, you know, removing outliers, that ends up being a lot more important in many cases than your choice of model. Now, when you're dealing with purchase data, that's usually not something you have to clean too much, right? Because mm -hmm. people are like shelling out a credit card and like, we know they really bought this thing. There's really no faking that, right? So that's really high quality data. The only thing you end up cleaning in that case are things like institutional buyers. So when you have one person buying like everything for a huge company under one credit card account, that will mess up your recommendations and you have to account for things like that. But when you're dealing with things like uh, click data, that gets hard, right? You know, you have to really uh, yeah. analyze the data, look for outliers, look for people that are just clicking on every page in your website every second and say, <laughs> hey, that's a bot. Let's throw that out. 
right? So, or, or people like my dad who double click every link for no reason. It's like you just need to click it once, dad. And he's yeah. he clicks it three <laughs> or four times. He's like, I'm making sure oh. this is open. And so, you know what the biggest, biggest problem is with click data? <laughs> I'll give you a fun story. We actually had ran a prototype in Amazon a long time ago where tried to recommend stuff on other websites based on what you were clicking on on other websites, what ads you actually clicked on. Uh-huh. And there's no delicate way to say it. It ended up being a porn recommender at the end of the day. because <laughs> oh, The more flesh you could see in an image, the more likely people were to click on it. So oh, that wow. experiment did not last very long. I think I, I think I just came up with some, some new ideas to sell. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's an example of where people are clicking on things that aren't really representative of where they intend to spend their money. You know, it's yeah. just what catches the eye. So when you get into what people are clicking on, that tends to be a very dodgy indicator of interest. Huh. Interesting. That's really cool. Uh, you know, just the idea of thinking about what what's indicating interest. And I guess like I'm I'm guilty of this as well. I'll be scrolling through Twitter and you know, my daughter will take uh, her snack pack and throw it all over the place and just because I stopped scrolling doesn't mean I was interested in what I was looking at. It means I'm going I have to leave and go take care of life. So I guess it's it's pretty right. interesting how you how would you figure out, you know, you, you've you've identified for recommendation systems. There's there's this this explicit sort of way of saying I'm interested in this, but there's this whole other world out there of of sort of I guess what Chuck was trying to figure out. How did you find out the implicit kind of data? Mm-hmm. That that sounds like some entire department's job. <laughs> so I guess not implemented just for every website, right? Well, even in implicit data, there's varying degrees of quality there too, right? So for example, on YouTube, they know how long you watched a video. And Mm -hmm. the more time you spent watching a video, the more likely you are that you were really interested in it, right? So they can use that as an indicator of interest as well. You know, if you click on a video and click away a second later, that probably doesn't count as much as, you know, watching an actual video for an hour. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's signals like that you can use too. This is amazing stuff. Is all this in your courses? Yeah, we have a whole course on recommender systems that gets into a whole lot of detail on that. Uh, there's even like case studies for YouTube and Netflix that go into details wow. on how those systems work. It's amazing. Yeah. Of course, I watched both presidential debates on YouTube, and I don't know if interested is the right word. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They need to have it's, something that hooks up. I, I, that's why the, the Apple Watch is sitting there watching your heartbeat. <laughs> they want to sell that data. <laughs> yeah, that past them. Uh, that's true. You're, you're yeah. angry because someone's lying on there, and then the <laughs> other guy opens his mouth, and you're angry because someone else is lying on there too. <laughs> yeah, over here in the yeah. U.S., so barrels like just what you you U.S. people and your oh, fight over yeah, there. Uh, eyes on you. <laughs> <laughs> All of our eyes on you right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, no we'll we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> I, I apologize for that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, we are super uh, interested. We are following everything. Yeah. By the time this comes out, we'll we'll be a lot closer to having different answers on this. So not only curiosity, but also the results really affect all the world. I mean, we are also mm-hmm. affected at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Well, Frank, do you have, I'm sorry, we we jumped so much into recommendation systems. Do you have other things at your courses that you'd like to talk about? Oh, well, uh, recommender systems are actually my primary love. That's what I did at Amazon oh, professionally. Nice, nice. So yeah. we can talk about that all day if you want. Um, <laughs> I, I, had a, I had a question on that because yeah. some of the, how do we put it? So machine learning, at least in my head, and you can tell me, dude, you're totally wrong. 
But machine learning is usually focused on how do I get the specific outcome, right? So it's how do I identify this image as a squirrel or how do I, anyway, you know, you have all these different algorithms that do these different things and you train them to give you a specific outcome or output. But with recommender systems, I could see that. I mean, some of it's, yeah. you know, we got to purchase or we got to watch or we got to click or whatever. And, and that's the outcome. But sometimes the ends aren't so clear or the ends aren't quite what you think they are, right? So it might be that they ordered something or it might be that they ordered something, but the next time around, they actually set up a recurring purchase or something like that, right? And so you have this either primary or secondary outcome that's different from what would sort of be the intuitive thing. So if that's the case and it's hard to measure, how do you make sure that your recommendation engine is doing what you want it to? You actually hit on the hardest part of doing recommender systems, and that's, you know, how do you measure if a recommender system is good or not? Uh, when we do this in offline training, the way that you do that is you try to see if your recommender system can successfully predict what people rated items that you're holding out for your test uh, set, right? So That makes sense. Well, it's sort of, you know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a place to start at least. But at the end of the day, you don't really want a recommender system to recommend stuff that you already know about, stuff that you already bought or you already watched, right? So... Ultimately, your ability to predict what people already saw is not helpful for a real-world <laughs> recommender system. True. So it gets dicey, right? The only real way to evaluate these things are through online A-B tests in the real world. you got to keep iterating on these algorithms, deploy new ones, put them against each other head-to-head, -head, and see which ones drive the results you want. And you also touched on the other challenge there, what are the results that you want? Like you said, there's many outcomes downstream of seeing a recommendation that might indicate that that recommendation was actually successful, you know? Maybe if you bought something, you know, five clicks away, you still attribute it to that recommendation in some way. So you'll find that a lot of these big companies like Amazon and Google and Netflix will have these very complex systems for attributing purchases or whatever outcome they ultimately care about to some action that they saw previously in their click stream. And that's sort of a prerequisite for having a good recommender system. Uh, you have to have that framework, that architecture for measuring changes on your website and the impact that they have downstream. That's awesome. Mm. You, you know... That brings up a pretty interesting point here. Yeah, I was mentioning earlier about my daughter. And one of the things that's happened to our Netflix now is they are pretty much... I, it's like, you want to watch Spookly the Square Pumpkin, don't you? And I'm like, no, I do not. <laughs> I am sick of watching Spookly the Square Pumpkin. <laughs> and, and it's I know after 8 o'clock. Right. Yeah, exactly. There's yeah. there's like multiple, you know, accounts, but we all log into one account for mm -hmm. simplicity. And the recommendations are absolutely ridiculous now. Yep. Is that a common problem? I guess it wouldn't be so much on Amazon. You don't have everybody hopping into your Amazon account. But it's got to be a huge problem for videos, like especially anybody sharing a ad free YouTube account or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Whenever my uh, teenage daughters get on my computer and start looking at YouTube videos, it's I'm done, right? Like, I, I wouldn't believe this stuff <laughs> so yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a terribly hard problem. I mean, the, the simplest solution yeah. is just to make sure that people are using different accounts or different personas when they can and make that as easy as possible to do. Um, mm -hmm. Otherwise, it can be really tough to tease that apart. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, again, that's that's the Apple Watch coming in. It's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> heartbeats elevating. <laughs> this wasn't their show. <laughs> or they'll just track where you are on your phone and see if it matches up to your computer or not. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I, I say perfect. Also completely frightening. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a slippery slope. 
You know, this uh, technology was kind of like the beginning of a lot of these advertising technologies and tracking technologies. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's a whole ethical side to it as well, for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. You bring that up. And yeah, how do you keep the recommendation from crossing that creepy line wherever that is? Yeah. I mean, the, the reality is, you know, the people that are practicing this stuff kind of have to please themselves to some extent, you know. So, mm -hmm. in most of my courses, I have a little lecture on ethics and I tell people, look, you're a highly trained, qualified, desirable engineer who can get a job anywhere. If your boss is telling you to do something that seems creepy, you can say no, you'll be okay, right? But it's too easy to get caught up into the corporate Kool-Aid and just say, yeah, I'm going to do this creepy thing, you know, because it's good for the company, go team. And a lot of, you know, things where that, that seem kind of bad, like, you know, tracking your location and targeting ads based on where you physically are right now down to the meter. You know, if you're working for a company and all you care about is driving some metric for your team, that might not seem creepy. So there's there's no good answer, I'm afraid, you know, but we just have to instill in people that are learning this field to think about ethics, ethics and uh, think about how the technology they're building might be used in ways that they don't necessarily intend. I mean, like sometimes when I buy stuff for the groceries, like I'm buying a certain type of flavored water. And then five minutes later, when I'm logging on Facebook, I see like the exact ad for that or mm -hmm. related products. and it was even a controversy that supposedly Facebook app had like a microphone, but that was sort of debunked. That's actually more of the recommendation system. But would that be an example of like intrusive technology? Yeah, I mean, there are, you know, they're probably not actually listening to you, but they do have technologies like, I, mean, I don't know if Facebook is doing this, but it's possible, for mm. example, to see what you're connecting through through Bluetooth on your phone, seeing what Wi-Fi networks you're con connecting to and geolocating based on that. So by mining the data on your phone, you know, they can tell a whole lot about you that you probably don't want them to know. Right. So, mm. I mean, there are definitely people doing that. Yeah. I just got a Facebook uh, notification. We are definitely not listening to you. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> that's really cool. <laughs> that makes me feel better. But I feel better. I know, plenty, I know plenty of people that have talked about something in front of their Amazon Echo and then had Amazon mm. recommendations, even though they didn't say the, the wake word for it. Yeah. Mm. I'm skeptical about that. I mean, I, I know the people that are in charge of Echo and, pretty sure they wouldn't do something like that without disclosing it but yeah it, it's yeah. a natural human fear to 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 think that that's happening and obviously it, it you could, could watch be confirmation your, bias yeah yeah you, you could exactly. watch the network traffic if i mean that's what i always tell everybody like this it's like just watch the network traffic coming off of the device is it sending anything <laughs> if it's not then you know i've been told it's what 12 seconds before and after the wake word or something like that it gets sent off yeah. it's like sure that, that kind of makes sense. And that might actually accidentally pick up a little bit extra, uh, you know, if you said a bunch of stuff, then went into it. But I don't think it actually sends off too much. That's no, fair. Yeah. And my kids talk to the Echo incessantly, so. <laughs> <laughs> we have to remember, too, that, you know, everything that happens throughout the day is an impossible coincidence with something, right? It's just that our brains are right. to identify yeah. and pick up on the ones that are meaningful to us. So really, you're surrounded by these, like, really counterintuitive coincidences all day long, you just don't notice them. Right? <laughs> yep. So let's say that I decide I want to build a recommender for my website, right? Or, you know, I, I go and I'm building something on top of one of my favorite new projects is uh, the podcast index, which Adam Curry has put together. And it's essentially to have an independent podcast network, but it's also to make it super programmer friendly so that people can build podcast apps 
that don't rely on the Apple API in case they do something weird with it, you know, they change it or anything like that, right? It'll have a reliable interface. And so I'm looking at it. And so let's say that I grab that and I load the whole index into my system and start building a recommender system on it. And then I have an app that's feeding me data as far as people are subscribed to this one and this one and this one and this one. How, how, where, where do I go from there? Well, there's no easy answer to that for everyone to be doing it. So oh, I was hoping I could just get, get a recommender on Amazon Prime and be here in two days. Well, there is a <laughs> recommender service on Amazon Web Services you could use. They have a personalization service that oh, okay. you, know, you just feed it data and it gives you recommendations. So if you want something easy to use and scalable, that's probably a reasonable place to start. I think it's just called the Amazon Personalization Service or something you know simple like that. Uh, but if you want to roll your own, that's an option too. If you have like really massive data and you don't want to be paying AWS for everything, Apache Spark has some recommender systems in its mllib library so if you're willing to delve into the world of spark in the spark cluster that's one way to go about it and if you just want to experiment the library that we use in my courses is called surprise lib it's a little simple open source library that's good for experimenting and trying a few different algorithms and putting them head to head and seeing what works best for your data oh nice leveling up is important i spend at least an hour every day learning ways i can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book if you're looking to level up i recommend you start out with the 12 week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. So you actually experiment with this because it seems like you kind of get into your head, or at least I do, right? It's like, well, there's a standard way to do this. But it, yeah, it sounds like there may be different algorithms depending on the outcomes and the data that you have that you may want to see which one works the best. Yeah, it really depends on the nature of your data and the outcome you're trying to drive, right? And, and how much data you have. So, you know, Amazon and Netflix and Google and these guys, they can just throw data into this hopper and like have good stuff come out the yeah. other end without thinking about it too much. But if you have really sparse data, like you only have a few people, uh, you know, providing data to your system, you're going to have to get more creative. You know, maybe that behavior data isn't enough to make good recommendations and you need to augment that with other things like content-based recommendations or um, even, you know, human-generated rules to uh, try to augment that, that final end product. So one question I have for recommendation systems, are they starting to use like natural language processing more? Because, you know, you were mentioning click streams and I've like been reading papers on NLP and I noticed that more and more they're using like topic modeling as like to get like increasingly more data for the specific type of topics. Cause basically one of the beauties of deep learning is you can mix all sorts of data now with NLP, even like image processing and so on. So do all those type of data go in when doing recommendation systems? I haven't seen people using NLP that way with recommender systems, although you certainly could. YouTube is actually a good example where they have a whole huge variety of inputs and they just feed it into this sparse neural network and see what comes out the other end. And everything you can imagine goes into that. It's not just what videos you've looked at. It's like, what time is it? You know, how long have you been a member? You know, whatever it is. Uh, I, haven't people, I haven't seen people using NLP in topics, but it's certainly possible. I would caveat that, though, with, you know, my findings are generally that the simpler algorithms are the ones that perform the best. So the more layers of complexity and processing you're putting in front of that input data, the yeah. lower quality that data will be and the lower quality your recommendations will be at the end. Yeah. I think that's the classic case of academia where it's, ahead of the curve, like they have all these theoretical papers and there's yet someone to find like a practical application for it. 
oh yeah, when I was just starting at Amazon, like my whole secret there was like looking at academic papers from 10 years ago that didn't make sense 10 years ago and saying, hey, we can do that now. So <laughs> let's try it out and see if it actually works in practice. But yeah, it's usually ahead of its time. Mm. Nice. Cut to silence. I'm uh, developing explainable AI course and some of them are online at the moment. And uh, I continue with the courses. But as I said, I don't have experience with recommender systems. In explainability field, we've taken examples in computer vision, for instance, and we try to explain what the AI is looking at, what it is learning. Is it focusing on the right thing when it's making the classification? If not, what, it, what is it looking at in the data set? Should I change my structure? Should I change my training data set? So we try to open up the black box a little bit, bring some transparency. Do you think it's also interesting in recommender systems to look at, for instance, what is it looking at? What features is it learning? What is the focus thing? Or you just try and if it works or not, or else change the network? Yeah, there's definitely an intuitive aspect to tuning these things. Where do I start? Uh, yeah, I mean... First of all, you know, it, it makes sense to start with simpler algorithms than just a deep neural network because, like you said, that's often a black box. It's hard to understand what's going on inside of it. So if you're using a more straightforward approach where you really understand the inputs and how they're being analyzed against each other, that helps you have a more intuitive understanding of what's going on in that black box. But what I really encourage my students to do is to look at the final results they're getting and look at them qualitatively. You know, like we talked about earlier, it's really hard to measure whether a recommendation is good. And at the end of the day, you have to take some personas, you know, take your own behavior data, have the system generate recommendations for you and ask yourself, are these good recommendations? And if they're not, why not? Is it because they're too similar to each other? Well, we can attack that problem specifically by enforcing that there's a certain uh, degree of dissimilarity between our results, for example. Is it based on stale data like we were talking about earlier? Maybe I need a different uh, cutoff or exponential decay on the weight of ratings over time, right? So... You know, there is this real qualitative aspect to figuring out are these good recommendations or not before you roll them out to the real world. You can't really answer these quantitatively. And to get to your point, yeah, it does require sort of an intuitive understanding of what's going on under the hood and how you might address these individual problems that you're perceiving in the results that you're getting. So, are yeah, those structures always domain specific? For instance, you train something for Amazon and can you use what you learned in Spotify, for instance, something totally different? Can you learn something from another domain and transfer the knowledge or what do you transfer? Absolutely. You know, at the end of the day, you're just, you know, looking at indications of interest in something, right? And maybe it's a product, maybe it's a song, maybe it's a video. It's really the same approaches in most of those cases. Where things get different is where you're introducing metadata, you know, attributes of the, the items themselves. So if you don't have enough behavior data and you need to augment that with something else, then that becomes domain specific. For example, with music on Spotify, maybe you'd be looking at what genre the music is in that people like, or you know, the actual analyzing the waveforms of the music itself to figure out how fast or slow it is in terms of tempo, or what kind of uh, music it is, you know, tonally. So you know, things like that would be domain specific. But if you're just dealing with behavior, did this person like this thing? You really just have to think about how are people indicating interest in the thing you're trying to recommend, and that's pretty portable. Nice. So you you'd spoken earlier about collaborative recommender. And I think you're saying that before it was it was sort of like a multiplication. Is this that 
kind of placing those those users in a space and then identifying how close they are in this multi-dimensional space. Um, exactly. so, so it's like an embedding space. And the closer two people are together, the more likely they are to be you know, similar in their recommendations. Is that... Yeah, if you want to geek out, you know, the, uh, yeah, the collaborative filtering. <laughs> That's why <laughs> we're here. Yeah, I mean, in collaborative filtering, it's all about building these vectors in multi-dimensional space, like you said. And every dimension is actually a product or an item that you're trying to recommend. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, if you gave this item five stars, you'd have a vector five units long in the direction of that product in this multi-dimensional product space. Mm -hmm. And you build up these vectors for every user or every item, depending on what approach you take, and see how close they are to each other, the angle between them, right? And, gotcha, uh, yeah. That's the fundamental mathematics behind the cosine similarity metric that is pretty popular in these systems. It's cosine so, similarity and, and I, versus, I guess, if using like the, the dot product of, of like those two different things. So but that's, that's great. So you're just taking a look at the placing the, this information out there. It doesn't seem that complicated when we kind of put it that way. It almost seems visual. You've got this box of all these points in there and then you've placed it there. I, I think we see the same stuff with word to vectors over mm -hmm. in NLP kind of stuff. So I guess that kind of comes back to what you were saying, Daniel, you know, on the similarity between these. Mm. That, that That's really cool. And that, and that doesn't even seem like it's gotten into a neural network yet. And right. it seems very explainable. That's awesome. And that's that's in your courses as well, correct? It is, yeah. And it's surprisingly easy to wrap your head around if it's explained properly. So yeah, Awesome. Totally. Yeah, you, what I find is at least most of the base ideas on a lot of these things are exceptionally approachable. Like you might get some fancy terms. I mean, Gantt threw out a couple of fancy math terms, but they're fancy math terms for some pretty simple ideas on what you can do to a vector or a matrix. And you, you kind of get these simple ideas. Where it gets hairy sometimes is I've got to do some complicated stuff to get set up or there are interactions of more than two or three things that are hard to get your head around. That's that's where things get hard. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, you know, kind of the approach that I take with all of my courses is to try to explain these algorithms in plain and simple terms mm -hmm. while avoiding all this technology, you know, terminology and fancy Greek letters and stuff like that, right? Because when you <laughs> strip out all that, uh, you know, mm -hmm. academic fluff on top of it, most of these algorithms are pretty easy to understand intuitively. So that... You know, and that's important when you're selling courses to hundreds of thousands of people around the world. You, you want to make sure that people can, you know, be successful with understanding these concepts and work them up to the more complicated situations like you were talking about. Yep. So you don't you don't represent the sum average with a bunch of sigmas and a bunch of crazy <laughs> Greek letters on top of one another so that everybody has memorized that. That's always good because yeah. I, I hate when I see that and I'm like, what is happening? Oh, you're just making an average here. That's just averaging numbers. Why did you have to write it that way? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I try to be very sparing on uh, anything that involves Greek letters. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess you weren't at a fraternity in, in school. <laughs> uh, no, no. That's a whole different See, There you go. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah, plus but... side is, the plus side is I learned all the Greek alphabets that way. So if I see anything in ancient Greek, ah. I understand it. <laughs> well, down here in Florida. Sorry. <laughs> it's all say Greek to me, Daniels. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interesting though, because I mean we we kind of talk about communicating without using all the Greek letters or the the math terminology, but when you get down to the nuts and bolts, a lot of times you need that because you need the precision of language to really express what 
you can prove what you care about and you know what is or isn't included in it. But yeah, if you're just trying to implement this and you want a result that's good enough, yeah, you don't necessarily need to know much beyond there's this algorithm, it relies upon these concepts, it works with these mathematical constructs. And, you know, if I need to get down to the nitty gritty, I can pull out my pen and paper and do some creative Googling and I can get to a place where I can understand the nitty gritty details. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's just, you work people up to that, right? So you start with yeah. the intuitive understanding and, you know, hopefully they are coming at this with some mathematical background, preferably linear algebra yeah. or something like that. So, you know, when they are hit with Greek letters in the real world, you know, they won't just gloss over and say, ah, what's this? So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, sometimes uh, the Greek letters are the omega of my learning. That's the, <laughs> <laughs> if you kick me off for that joke, I don't, I don't apologize. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else that we should cover on this topic before we start looking at wrapping up? One thing that I wanted to hear just real quick, Frank, is can you give us kind of the the two or three minute rundown of what people can expect to get from your course? Yeah, I mean, well, there are many courses available on Manning. Uh, one of them is about recommender systems, which is what we've been talking about for the most part here. And we do start sort of start off with what is a recommender system. And we covered a lot of that in this talk, actually how collaborative filtering works, which we also talked about. And we work our way up to more complicated situations like using deep learning. And we finally end up in case studies like how does Netflix really do it? How does YouTube really do it? What can I tell you about how Amazon does it? Which I can't tell you much, but, (laughs) you know, I can tell you a little bit. So, you know, and we also touch on some of the real world applications and uh, concerns like how do you deal with the timeliness of data? How do you deal with diversity and novelty of recommendations? How do you deal with the ethics of this whole world? So it really runs the gamut. It's about uh, 12 hours of content, I think, on video form. And, you know, beyond that, we have we, I offer courses on machine learning and uh, deep learning and data science, Apache Spark, what else, AWS, you know, all sorts of stuff. So, you know, hopefully people can uh, graduate and uh, expand to a more broad technology horizon with those courses as well. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Well, I'm going to go ahead and throw out our, our link here. So if you go to the link, it'll ask you to put your email address in. That'll get you into the, the drawing. And then you can actually go share the contest out on the internet. And then, yeah, anybody else who joins in, you know, you get extra entries for that and we just make that work so what's great is that there will also be a link on there for you to go and look at what is in the course and decide if that's something that you know you want so let's see let's do devchat.tv slash frank kane and that's frank with a k kane with a k and yeah you can go check out what we're offering there and like i said we have five licenses that we can give away and then we'll send out an email with the coupon code for 35% off if you don't win. Nice, nice deal. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. All right, let's go ahead and do some picks. Daniel, why don't we make you start? You mean for my specific picks? Yes. Yeah, I guess my picks are at the moment. I know this is probably an oldie, but it's uh, Silicon Valley. Like, actually, <laughs> um, now that like everyone has been sort of semi-quarantined, I'm catching up on all the HBO shows. And, you know, I, I'm someone who tries to keep up with all the geek TV shows. And I was 
kind of surprised, like, how did I miss this out in the first place? Because, like, everything that they talk about in Silicon Valley, like, the startup environment, that's, that is truly, like, what I went through in that world, although it was in New Jersey, New York, not California. And I mean, they cover it so realistically, but they still have like a touch of absurdity to like bring the comedy into it. Yeah, that's a that's such a good pick. And I, I, I'm i going to out myself real quick because just just so you all know, it was Silicon Valley did an episode on where I don't know if you've gotten there or not, but there's going to be an app that they make called Hot Dog, Not Hot Dog. And it's written in React Native. And I was like, this is written in JavaScript. This is amazing. I'm going to go look at the source code and maybe I'll make something myself. And when I opened that source code, I had no idea what the hell was going on. There was flowing tensors and logic and light tensors. And I was, I was like, I, I suck at this. I need to get better at machine learning. So funny enough, it was the straw that broke the camel's back for me was opening up the released code base from that show and then finding out that I had no idea how to read any of that code that got me into really finally starting to take courses and starting to learn what's going on with machine learning, Mm -hmm. Um, which I know, Daniel, you started, what is it, like 150 years ago? (laughs) You've been doing this stuff. He knows this stuff really well. I'm, I'm a pretty new even though i've got like a bunch of certifications now they're all they're all fresh it's like two three lifetimes ago for me yeah wow wow yeah back when they were uh smacking rocks together and then interpreting the results right (laughs) (laughs) that was the early perceptron network is a system of rocks yeah (laughs) sorry we kind of cut in on you there daniel was was that your only pick or did you have something else you wanted to shout out about yeah i guess another one is Web, there's a website, if you're really interested into getting into the machine learning culture, called machinelearningmastery.com. And it's by a PhD student, by a PhD graduate who actually had like very similar path, I'm sure, to most of us, like starting out as developers. And he then self-taught himself machine learning. So it's written, it's written like sometimes with some math terminology, but most of the time it's in layman's terms. So people with like, a decent grasp of computer science and mathematics or bare bones of it can like really, really grasp it. And he posts like topics every day on all sorts of things like time series, recommendation systems. And he has like uh, his own bundle for like $99, but it's absolutely worth it. Like it gets you into the fundamentals of statistics, uh, fundamentals of probability, calculus, uh, linear algebra, and like you know, a decent layman ways term of describing everything. Because I know sometimes one of the people, one of the complaints people have when they're transitioning to developers is that they have to learn all these advanced mathematical concepts, you know, like linear algebra or probability, things that were never covered at all in their CS classes. And I think this gives them like a really great grasp because I think it goes the right way of giving them the fundamentals to work with. And then they're sufficient. They're sufficiently educated enough to start working, and then from there they can like build up to like more advanced concepts later on, depending on what projects they're working on. Nice. That sounds awesome. Yeah, we'll make sure we get that link in there as well. Mm-hmm. Beryl, do you have some picks for us? Yes, indeed. 
I've got a new playlist on my YouTube channel about my XAI course. I do not only share my uh, official theoretical lectures, but we've got also expert videos. One of them is Gantt. It's already up there. So I really recommend people to go ahead and watch. We've got experts from Google AI. I've got some Kaggle competition uh, winners upcoming and yeah there will be more videos and Gant thanks a lot again for your video there you explained how to use javascript to train a tic-tac-toe <laughs> it was quite impressive example what you can do with javascript to solve a cnn uh, problem with um, sorry a neural network uh, problem on browser it was fun nice very cool Gant, what are your picks well, specifically, since Beryl is so nice to mention something that I'm in, I'm going to mention something that she's in. She'll be speaking at mlconf.eu, which is coming up on November 5th and 6th. And that's going to be a huge event with lots of great speakers. A lot of the guests that have been on this podcast will be speaking there. I guess, you know, it's just a matter of time before they ask Frank if he wants to speak. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, it's, it's a really cool conference and it's done by the wonderful people who do React Summit and a bunch of those other conferences. So you can sort of see that same flavor, style and design. If you've ever attended one of those React online conferences, this will be working the same exact way. So mlconf.eu, really awesome. I'm really happy to see that that conference is coming up and I definitely recommend checking it out. Very cool. The European conferences are fun too because you always get to try some of the local cuisine. One of my picks is going to be Stroopwafel. I, I love those things. So good. Oh my um, goodness. I yeah. You, you what? I can send you some. Oh, you're my new best friend. <laughs> <laughs> you're my kid's new best friend too. I, I will get to eat like two of them. Yeah, give me your address after this talk. Okay. But yeah, so... I, I'm going to shout out about that because I've been to Amsterdam, I think twice. And yeah, it's a terrific city. But yeah, then it's okay. I'm going to try some Dutch food, which isn't really something that they do here in the US. Like there aren't Dutch restaurants. But yeah, and then, you know, Stroopwafel. I always come home with like a box of them. So <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm going to shout out about that. And then I have been diving into a couple of things to get like membership sites and summits up. I'm putting actually putting on a summit next month, but it's for podcasters on podcast growth. So if you're interested, it's podcast growth, podcastgrowthsummit.co. But I don't know that I expect too many people listening to this to want to go do that. I am working on a whole bunch of stuff around careers and soft skills. And so if you're interested in that sort of thing, then go to mostvaluable.dev and uh, you can see the details on the summit on the membership and mastermind and things like that that I'm pulling together for that. So yeah, those are my picks. Uh, and Frank, what are your picks? Jeez. So one website that I keep landing on seems to be towarddatascience.com. I have nothing to do with it, but they have some really good blog articles there to, again, explain some of these uh, concepts in machine learning algorithms in real plain language. So I think that's a really great resource for people learning this stuff. And I'll get my own website a plug, sundog-education.com, if you want to check that out. And yeah, I've also been reading a cool book lately. It has absolutely nothing to do with machine learning. It's called uh, Until the End of Time by Brian Greene. It's sort of a theoretical physicist approach to uh, what is the meaning of life. And <laughs> if you're having an existential crisis like many of us are these days, it's a good read. <laughs> yep. Awesome. 
Frank, if people want to connect with you, maybe they have questions, maybe they just want to find your courses, maybe, yeah, anything like that, where do, where do they reach out to you? Probably the place to start is my website, sundog-education.com. You'll find links there for where we're at on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and YouTube and all the various social stuff. So um, yeah, go start there and you'll uh, find out how to track me down. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up. Uh, thanks for coming. This was this was fun. Thank you. It was good being here. Max out, everybody. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.